Over the past two years, Western intelligence officials are seeing what they describe as a very dramatic increase in attempts by the government of Iran to launch assassinations of its perceived political enemies overseas, to orchestrate kidnapping plots to try and bring dissidents back to Iran where they would face trial. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. And he's been hearing from sources in the intelligence community that Iran has been escalating its covert lethal operations around the world. This kind of behavior is not necessarily new for the government of Iran. They've launched these kinds of intelligence operations before. The tempo of it and the breadth of it and what officials described as the kind of audacity of these plots has them very alarmed because they see that tempo going up in the past two years. Part of what makes it so concerning is the wide variety of people that are being targeted. Targets like John Bolton, the former national security advisor, prominent journalists, prominent and active dissidents who were living overseas. And if Iran succeeds, experts are worried about the potential consequences. Because if Iran pulled off one of these high-profile kidnappings or killings in the United States and the United Kingdom, there would have to be a very forceful response to that action. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh, your guest host for today. It's Thursday, December 1st. Today, Shane takes us inside Iran's playbook and explains what could happen if Iran carries out a successful attack on Western soil. Rahal Azam's case actually offers a really good kind of case study of this, who was a very prominent journalist living in exile in France. He comes from a family, a prominent Iranian family. His father is a very well-known moderate cleric. Um, he ran an organization called Ahmad News that had one million followers on Telegram. And Rahala was very much an active, prominent voice in the community of Iranian dissidents. In that instance, what our sources have told us is that Iran essentially orchestrated a fake interview that was offered to Rahala to interview uh, Ayatollah al-Sistani al -Sistani in Iraq, who is this you know, supreme Shiite cleric and important spiritual leader in Iraq. And for someone like Rahala Zam, this was a very good interview. It was a very good get for him to be able to interview Sistani. So... He goes from his home in France to Iraq under the presumption that he is going to be conducting an interview. When he gets to Iraq, he is, as we understand it, quite quickly apprehended by the government there. And the government of Iraq has an extradition treaty with the government of Iran. And so he is quickly then taken over to Iran and handed over to authorities where he's wanted in Iran. And he is you know, given a sham trial. Uh, and sentenced to death. So there's an example where the government in Iran knows something that could be valuable or interesting to the target and kind of uses it as a lure to then get that person to go to a place where they are not safe. Interestingly, you know, we talked to one uh, a dissident as well, an Iranian-Canadian man named uh, Ramin Sayed Imami, who lives in Vancouver and has a podcast that is very critical of the regime. It talks about 
themes on religion and on sex and on, you know, gender that are verboten, you know, in Iran. He was visited by authorities from Canadian intelligence who proactively warned him against traveling to countries that have friendly relations with Iran, Mm -hmm. that border Iran, kind of as a way of saying, look, you know, you're, they didn't say you're on a list, but that was the implication. And what they were doing there was saying basically, Avoid certain places because if you go there, you're not going to be safe as you might be in Canada or as safe. So Iran has kind of gone to these efforts to try and get people to step outside of the more protected place that they are in Europe, in Canada, and the United States and get to a place where they can either lay hands on them with friendly governments or, you know, with agents who are working for them. So it sounds like, you know, you had mentioned previously John Bolton, an American official. You talked about a dissident. But this podcaster sounds like someone who is just speaking about topics that they would rather not discuss in Iran. And are we seeing other targets who kind of line up in that way, not necessarily people who have an antagonistic relationship with the regime, but just people who are maybe proliferating ideas, particularly during this period, that they don't really want to be spreading? Yeah, I think that's right. And and, and to be clear, too, I mean, both spreading ideas and being critical of the regime. And the government in Iran views the spreading of the ideas as an effort to undermine them. And they don't really make a distinction between, you know, journalists and activists. Um, If we look at, for instance, what they've been doing uh, in the UK with targeting of journalists there for people who work, for instance, for the Persian language service of the BBC or an organization called Iran International, the British government recently sent written warnings to many journalists working in London and in the UK saying, look, we have reason to believe that the regime views what you're doing, your journalism, as a threat to them. So there it's, you know, people who, like me and you, go to work every day, particularly at a place like BBC, and they're just reporting. They're reporting on the protests. They're reporting on Iran critically, obviously. But they wouldn't see themselves as engaged in activism, right? The government of Iran views them as a threat, as an external threat that's akin to like a terrorist organization. It was very interesting just uh, about 10 days or so ago, the Metropolitan Police had to put armed guards outside the offices in London of Iran International, a very kind of extreme step because there were credible threats to journalists working for that organization. And again, you can only imagine, you know, if a journalist in the UK, particularly if it's a British national, but even if it's not a citizen of the UK, someone who's working there, were murdered in the streets of London, (laughs) that's going to get a lot of attention. That's going to not just – and the government of – Britain will view that as a violation, as, as a, you know, a kind of um, a violation of its sovereignty as well. So the diplomatic and foreign policy stakes of this just start to escalate. How common is it for Western intelligence to uncover these assassination or kidnapping plots from other antagonistic governments? I think it's it's fairly common. And we should say, too, in this, these cases with Iran, in many cases, they're not going to great lengths to cover up what they're doing. I think in some cases they wanted to be known and deniable, which is why they tend to use proxy actors, people who are not officially part of the government. What you don't often see is Western governments being so public 
about the plots that they're uncovering. So, you know, their job at the CIA or MI6 or MI5 in Britain, their job is to uncover these kinds of uh, efforts and to deter them and to try and stop them from happening. What's different now is that so many officials are raising the alarm publicly, both in the conversations that we've had with them and then even the past couple of weeks, very publicly in speeches, such as the MI5 chief recently giving public remarks about what Iran is doing. That part is new and I think illustrates the level of anxiety that is going through these Western governments right now about what Iran is up to. What is the scale of these attacks? Do we have a sense of numbers? How many have been attempted? How many have been successful? Well, it's hard sometimes to quantify them, but what when we talk to officials, what they tell us is in the past two years that the tempo, the frequency, the number of plots they've detected is just going up, and it seems to be going up quite rapidly. One set of numbers we can apply to this actually comes from a, a researcher named Matthew Levitt, who is a former U.S. counterterrorism official, and he's now a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And Matt has been tracking Iranian plots of this nature, both attempted or actual assassination, attempted kidnapping plots. And there are many more out there he's sure than he's been able to track, but he can identify, he says, 124 foreign plots since 1979. So in that body, in that group, 36, he says, have occurred in the past two years. So in the visible plots that we can track and identify and quantify, that gives you, I think, a real sense of how fast that uptick has been. He, Matt, Matt called that, in his words, an extraordinary increase. Do Western intelligence agencies have evidence that attacks could be taking place on Western soil, like in the UK or in Canada? They do. I mean, the, the most prominent case, I would say, probably was the attempted assassination of John Bolton. In that case, it was very interesting. The person who was sort of the, if you want to think of it like the overseer, the conductor of the plot, was never in the United States. And according to officials we've talked to, he's never traveled to the United States. Via social media, he got connected with an individual in the U.S. who he believed was going to be able to conduct surveillance of John Bolton and ultimately carry out a plot and kill him. Now, unbeknownst to this Iranian, he was actually talking to an informant for the FBI, mm -hmm. which is why they kind of have transcripts of all these conversations. But that's one example. Also, there's a journalist, Masi Elinijad, who uh, is a very prominent Iranian-American journalist who has been very open and critical of the regime. There have been indictments in a case allegedly targeting her, where agents for Iran plan to go to her house in Brooklyn, orchestrate a way to kidnap her, possibly like from her own house. They were found to have been researching ways to spirit her out of the country, possibly by boat, take her to Venezuela, which has a more friendly relationship with Iran. So there is another case where someone who is not a former government official, I mean, John Bolton, I mean, Somebody who was deeply involved in policy, U.S. policy on Iran, noted Iran hawk, very critical. Not to excuse that, but you can almost imagine why the government of Iran might see him as a particular kind of person they wanted to go after. But Alinejad, you know, while vocal, is just a journalist. She is a regular person mm -hmm. living in New York. Someone like you. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is this case is well really shook people because, you know, here is someone just going about her daily life, and it turns out that there are agents for Iran plotting to kidnap her and had been 
following her around, taking pictures of her, taking pictures of her family. And we know this according to Justice Department documents. So I think that like if you kind of take those two instances, it gives you a sense of the range of how far Iran is willing to go. They're targeting well-known prominent officials and they're targeting journalists who are, are not, you know, uh, internationally famous and, and are, are just living their daily lives. I'm curious, are there examples of successful kidnapping and assassination plots that can really give these targeted people a concrete foundation to feel that fear? Yeah, I mean, I think the Rahala Zam kidnapping is probably the one that sticks out the most for people because he was so prominent. He was so outspoken. He had so many followers. And their feeling, I think, was that, you know, the plot to kidnap him was highly orchestrated. It worked. And, and Rahal Azam, you know, was not unaware of the threats against him mm -hmm. and, and was not, I would not say, was not a reckless person. I mean, he was very bold. Um, you know, he was very outspoken. He believed very much in the mission he was doing. But nobody, I think, expected that, you know, he was going to be hanged in Tehran. And that was just a shockwave when mm -hmm. it went around. I mean, everyone knew that if the Iranians ever got their hands on him, they would probably do that. But that is one, I think, that for a lot of people in similar situations was something that really put a lot of fear into them um, because it was so public. And the Iranian government boasted about this. They were really painting this as a coup for their intelligence services who had outfoxed, you know, their adversaries in the West. And again, not just taking, you know, Rahal Azam's individual case, but then positioning him in a broader context mm -hmm. of the battle that the Iran is in against the West. So that's, a, that's another reason why it stuck so out. So they're open about these assassination programs. How does Iran speak publicly about this? How do they portray it? Do they describe it as kidnapping and assassination? No. I mean, their attitude on this is, you know, that these are, you know, enemies of the state, basically. They will they deny things like involvement in the operation to kill John Bolton. And they give very perfunctory kind of denials, even though in, in some of these cases, the evidence is quite overwhelming. And, you know, anyone can go on the Internet and read the charging documents in John Bolton's case and make up your own mind. You're right. They don't go to great efforts, it seems, to hide it. And obviously, killing a former White House official in Washington would be pretty hard to hide. What they do, though, is try to create an element of plausible deniability, which is to say that, like in Bolton's case, it wasn't this official who was going to pull the trigger. It's that he hired proxies mm -hmm. in the United States, people who didn't work for the government. Basically, hitmen is how you can think of them. For the government of Iran, it allows them to say, like, we had nothing to do with this. This person who shot John Bolton in the streets, who maybe you've, or maybe you would arrest this person, who knows? He's not connected to the government of Iran. We don't know who this person is. And while that's a ridiculous fiction and everyone sees right through it, Politically, it gives them the ability to kind of have this fig leaf to deny it, which is also to some degree an element of in how intelligence operations work. I mean, covert operations by definition are designed to be deniable. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily designed that they're never discovered. It's just that when they are discovered, you can't you know, easily trace it back or in an ironclad way to the government that did it. That's not to say that Iran also doesn't want people to know that this is happening. Like in the case of these kidnappings, you know, that they don't deny, like in Rahal Azam's case, they want activists to know this. They want them to be afraid and they want them to be silent. After the break, Shane explains Iran's potential endgame and what some Western countries are doing to counter those efforts. We'll be right back. 
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. A lot of these attempts you've talked about have also failed. And if the point is to send a message to dissidents and to journalists even, is the fact that there are so many failed attempts kind of undermining that message? Or does that actually lead to still this atmosphere of paranoia among dissidents? I think it's the latter. And and you're right to point out that these haven't materialized, with some exceptions. I mean, there have been like Rahal Azam and others who have been have been lured back to Iran who are now facing trial as well. In some cases, it appears, you know, these were not terribly well organized. Sometimes the hitmen kind of got cold feet. The fact that Iran manages these operations with proxies and is kind of at a remove or a bit of a hands-off, experts said, kind of increases the chances that they're going to fizzle. Like, these are not highly disciplined, you know, operations. But only a few of them need to get through, right? And because we haven't seen the attempts stop yet, that's what has officials thinking, like, Iran is just kind of like playing the odds almost. Like, eventually something's going to hit. And I think that's why the dissident community doesn't feel – they're not blasé about this. They're worried about it. And because they've seen it happen to their family, their friends, and, you know, you don't want to be the one person who eventually they do get to. And how does a Western government protect against these attempts? I know that you've talked about how they've reached out to these individuals, but is there any more recourse or protection that they could offer? Are there tools in the toolkit that the government hasn't quite gotten to yet? You know, I think that they're using a lot of them, which is kind of scary for a lot of these people. You know, you could put guards outside someone's workplace. We saw that happen with the Metropolitan Police in London. You can offer protective, you know, Guards for the individual. John Bolton has a security detail that's been plussed up in recent months. Um, he's also a former senior government official, so you might expect that they might be, you know, a government might be more willing to expend resources on him than perhaps on, you know, a guy who's a podcaster living in Canada. The threats are so widespread and the targets are so numerous that practically speaking, I think it would be very hard for Western governments to physically protect every single one of those people. So they're trying to warn them. Now, a lot of these, you know, individuals, you know, Alinejad is a good example of this, have said, like, there needs to be more on the political level by Washington, by London, by other governments to forcefully push back against Iran. Now, does that mean more sanctions? Maybe. Um, uh, you know, I think there are – no one that we talked to was calling for military action to be taken against Iran. But their fear was that if Iran persists in these operations and it does end up killing a prominent government official or former official or a prominent journalist in a Western country, that there will be significant pressure to respond militarily. That we would have – that the U.S. or the Brits or somebody would have to do something, maybe not overtly – but in a way that sends a message to the regime of like there are going to be consequences if you keep this up. I think a lot of the activists we've spoke to would hope that the Western governments could do something before then that would credibly deter Iran. But so far, what those governments are doing does not seem to be working. It's not deterring Tehran. And this is all happening amid the backdrop of these intense protests in Iran. And I'm curious – 
the more that the Iranian regime feels threatened, particularly by its own population, have officials talked about whether we could see these attacks or attempted attacks increase or escalate in threat level? We did talk to officials, even just in the, in the past couple of weeks, who said that they do think that the protests are driving Iran to even step up the tempo of this already fast pace of these threats against people living abroad. So I think the answer to your question is yes, that the protests become another driver, another motivation for Iran to try to extend its reach because they know that as powerful as these uprisings have been and these forces have been within Iran, they're being covered by organizations outside of Iran. And that message is then, and through social media, is reaching people in the diaspora, you know, Iranians who are living overseas. So it's not contained. So for the regime, it's not merely about suppressing the protest. It's also about trying to stop people from covering the protest. It's about trying to send a message to supporters of the protest outside Iran. And I think that it's another reason why officials and, and these individuals being targeted are, are very worried right now. They're very supportive of the protests, but they know that this comes potentially with a backlash too. It seems like given the current bad state of relationships between most Western governments and Iran, the protests that are happening in Iran, the escalation of these kidnapping attempts and assassination attempts, I wonder if it's like a Pandora's box situation. What are the implications, at least from our government, that would happen if the Biden administration, DOJ, CIA say we have strong enough of a case to say that Iran assassinated someone on our territory? I think the consequences would be extraordinary. Um, you know, we have kind of an analog for this. Uh, you know, uh, a number of years ago, Russian intelligence attempted to kill a former uh, uh, Russian official who had been spying for the British named Sergei Skripal. Uh, and they used a poison called Novichok, which ended up making him and his daughter very sick and ultimately killed uh, some bystanders. But that case of the attempted murder of a former British agent on British soil ignited a massive diplomatic blowback against the Russians. It didn't lead to military action. It may have led to covert things that we're not aware of, um, but huge diplomatic expulsions, which, by the way, then Russians reciprocate against us. So there's a cost for that. It was a major international incident and led to a lot of tensions. I think that if there were a successful murder on U.S. soil, particularly of someone prominent, the calls for some kind of forceful action against Iran, military action or something kind of more extreme measure than sanctions, I think would be pretty voluble, to put it mildly, because you would have this, I think the argument there would be not only this egregious act demands a response, but if we don't do it, Iran will feel they can do it again, and other adversaries will feel they can do it too. So I think that, you know, one official I talked to, a former U.S. intelligence official said, he thought that if one of these plots were pulled off in the U.S., he said at a minimum, there would need to be some kind of physical strike on a target of importance to the Iranian regime. These things can escalate very quickly, and that's what everyone wants to avoid, an incident leading to an escalation of hostilities that suddenly leads us into a more direct confrontation with Iran. But those are things that you can't discount. Those could happen. I think U.S. officials would try very hard to keep that from happening, but they would have to respond in a way that sent a message to the government in Iran that there's going to be a price and don't do this again. 
Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This story was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon. It was edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.